1: you're listening to the Bite sized Business Breakfast. Rich and Brandy with you this morning on a windy morning, our last morning at Al Wasseldome at Expo City, Dubai. In amongst the fresh weather, we have been looking at inflation from a number of perspectives. One from the US, where we have had some numbers out overnight that the Fed likes to keep an eye on because it tells them what's happening on the ground and therefore might influence what they do with interest rates. We have crossed live to Las Vegas of all places this morning to speak to Dr. Steve Miller. He's a professor of economic research and business at Lee Business School. Speaking of prices, we've been talking about record high cocoa prices and what they mean for the price of some of our favourite sweet treats. That's with Mauro Di Philippe, who's the new managing director for the Golf at Ferrero. They are the Rocher. People. we've also been talking about price rises when it comes to petrol filling up going to cost you between five and six percent more depending on what you like to put in your tank for the month of March speaking to the energy expert Matt Stanley of Kepler. And we've been talking about the cost of a good wedding uh, on the back of the world's most expensive wedding that's taking place in India at the moment. We've been talking about the cost of throwing a wedding here in both Dubai and India with Arun Bablani, who is the owner of Viva Weddings and founder of the Middle East Wedding Alliance. We have got Petrol prices for the month of March up uh, between about 5 and 6%, roughly, depending on whether you're filling up with special or super. Uh, Khadija Haq is Chief Economist at Emirates NBD. We've asked her what those price rises mean for UAE inflation. Petrol prices in the UAE
2: increased almost 6% month-on-month month in March for 95-octane petrol, as both crude oil prices and refining margins increased in February. However, on a year-on-year basis, Petrol prices are actually still down uh, 1.7%. So that should help to offset inflationary pressures in the CPI.
1: Right. Not the only person we've been speaking to about inflation this morning.
3: Yeah, we had inflation data out in the United States overnight. And it's a biggie because it is the favoured measure of inflation. From the Federal Reserve, or not from the Federal Reserve, but it's the Fed's favorite measure of inflation. It came in absolutely bang in line with expectations. As well as getting that number, 2.4%, in line with expectations, you had commentary from a number of Fed policymakers, including. My f- if the Fed can have a favorite measure of inflation, oh, I can have a favorite Fed policymaker, and at the moment, that hat is worn by Raphael Bostic, who heads up the Atlanta Fed. He was speaking yesterday, and this was his take on inflation and when it will be appropriate to start raising rates.
0: A year ago, I had expected that the first cut in rates would be appropriate, probably the end of this year at the earliest. Uh, the acceleration of inflation's decline has caused me to pull that forward. Uh, and so for me, I, I'm of a view that it'll probably be appropriate if things go the way I expect uh, to see uh, us to start to re- reduce rates in the summertime.
3: In the summertime is when he's expecting it. And to be fair, the markets now believe the Fed. If you look at the, the CME Fed Watch tool, chance of a rate cut in June. Virtually no chance, say the traders, of a rate cut in March. 21st of March, say three weeks time, we get that decision from, uh, from the Fed but no one's expecting a rate cut now in March. Just a few weeks ago, it was priced in as an absolute dead cert that we get a rate cut in March this year, but now June is the earliest according to the markets. They've been wrong before, they were wrong at the start of this year, <laughs> they were wrong until a few days ago as well. But of course, it does impact us. We've been getting a reaction to this from uh, Professor Stephen Miller. He is Professor of Economics in Las Vegas at the Lee Business School, University of Nevada. Stayed up late to speak to us earlier on this morning. Uh, this was his reaction, not only only to that inflation data but also to that summertime prediction from Fed watchers or Fed decision-makers like Raphael Bostic.
4: I'm not on the board so uh, I'm not in charge of this. Uh, He may be correct but data could change in such a way that might delay it. What I can't see for happening is that it would be sped up any. Imagine that you have a towel and you dropped it into the swimming pool and you pulled it out it's soaking wet And you start squeezing the towel to get the water out think of inflation so i'm getting the inflation out the more of the water i get out the harder it gets to get the last part out so the last mile is is the most difficult part of the uh, job
3: and when professor miller made that comment i did think of you because you've been saying this for a while now in your conversations with economists and i've been saying yeah inflation's back in the bottle it's down at three percent it was ten percent we're almost there and you to be fair have been saying It's the last 1%. That's the hardest part, right? Last mile delivery. It'll get you every time. (laughs) It will indeed. Uh, Katija Hack, obviously watching this one closely. She's chief chief economist of a bank here in the UAE. And the Fed's interest rates are our interest rates. Okay, the numbers in line with expectations. But what did we learn?
2: PCE inflation, which is the inflation measure that the Fed prefers to use, came in as expected in January at both the headline and the core rates. However, both measures showed a rise in inflation from December. In particular, the core PCE, which excludes food and energy prices, rose 0.4% month on month, the biggest increase since January 2023. The annual rate was 2.8%, which is also well above the Fed's 2% target. The inflation data supports our view that the Fed will not rush to cut rates and will wait for more evidence that
1: inflation is
2: well under control before they start to ease monetary policy.
1: Khadija Hack from Emirates NBD. Matt Stanley is from Kipler. He's been talking about how that 5 to 6% rise in petrol reflects what we have seen in oil prices over the month.
5: Look, I mean, the story of, of not just this month, but the month before that and the month before that has been one of stability in oil markets, you know, just to just to put it into context, Brent oil price at the end of February in 2023 was $83.89. At the end of February 2024 was $83.60. I mean, largely reflected what the same is at the pump here, you know, special 95 end of February last year was three dirhams, and five fills a litre. And now it's a bit lower, two, two dirhams, 92. That, that's mainly down to, um, you know, the, the price of, not just the price of crude, but the products you get out of them, uh, out of the crude you put into a refinery, are a little bit weaker than they were this time last year. Um, but look, as far, I don't know, we'll talk about it in a moment, but look, as far as if you're an oil producing country or you're part of OPEC, stability is job done.
1: That's stability. And I know you've pointed out in your commentary in recent weeks that oil has basically been trading in a $10 band this year, between 75 and $85 for Brent. How does that work with the war risk premium that we're seeing because of what's happening in the Red Sea at the moment?
5: That's a very good question. And, you know, arguably, um, you know, thanks for picking that up because that, that's something that I've kind of been banging that drum about for a while now is... If we didn't have the unfortunate circumstances that the world faces itself in when it comes to maritime security, Ice. which, of course, then means what happens to energy security, um, what would crude be worth now? And I'd argue it probably, I would argue there's probably a war risk premium there between five and ten dollars a barrel, something like that, which brings us on to the lower end of the pricing range that we are now. Um, and it's, its it, you know, the, the world, the issues the world is faced with. Is that there is no issue when it comes to production oil production it's just how the oil gets to the places that it needs to be um but look war is premium is you've seen it sort of jump up in recent weeks um talks of what what may be some kind of ceasefire offering or something will cause a a slight slump in volatility that we've seen in recent in recent times but essentially i would argue there's still about you know five to ten so, so around seven dollars a barrel war is premium priced into the Brent markets right now.
1: So what was the talk of IE week? You've just come back from London, huge gathering for the energy community. Um, what's the general feeling in terms of where we are in that supply and demand balance?
5: If I can remember, Brandy, i let you know. No, um, in all seriousness, it, um, it, it was one of, it, the market was, um, I'd say, fairly comfortable with how things are in terms of supply and demand. It's fairly well balanced. Um, the OPEC cuts. What the what the group are doing. The market has has the same faith, and then they have done really since the OPEC plus cartel got together. The group got together, which is they will do what they have to do when it's needed, and that's still very much uh, you know at the back of every trader's mind. Um, but look, I mean, robust growth that the I the OPEC are forecasting, you know, is is kind of countered a little bit with what the I A are forecasting. So there's a there's some there's some sort of give and take when it's coming to it. But, you know, within the, the foggy corridors of some alleyways in uh, in Mayfair at the weekend uh, and this week, um, it's one of pretty much wait and see. But I think a lot more people are prepared for a bit more volatility, a, a bit more of a spike in, in um, potential issues and what it might mean. Um, for the year ahead but at the moment market fairly well balanced and people seem to think it will be until um until the last quarter of this year
1: okay we've got two minutes left with you matt you mentioned there opec doing what needed to be done a lot of rumors that we could see those voluntary uh production cuts carried on into q2 what are you expecting
5: we we saw we we we, we looked at this november time 2023 and what the voluntary cuts might mean we still maintain that the, the Saudis would increase or extend their voluntary cuts until at least Q1 next year. It's still the market still too fragile to bring extra barrels back into the market. Um, it's very much like the, the inflation game. You know, your, your, your man earlier on who was talking about the, um, about the ringing of the towel. Well, it's, it's similar in the oil market. You know, if you can drip feed oil back into the market, which the group are doing it, it, it production was actually up in, in in february a little bit but if you were to ring the tail properly and, and people would see a lot more oil back in the market it's still a fragile state so we think that the saudis will increase the um voluntary cuts until q1 next year um and you know the, they will closely watch what other members of the group are doing as well
1: 30 seconds do you want to give us a price outlook well uh, will you <laughs>
5: Yeah, of course I can. Look, um, we actually see you know prices staying. We forecast at the moment. And bear in mind, let's put it into the into the, the bracket of where people are. So Citibank are at the lower of the forecast for 2024. Brent prices, $74 a barrel. Bank of America at the higher rate, $90. We were by far the most accurate forecaster of last year, just saying, not plugging. Um, and we think a price of daily Brent of about $81 and a half for this year. We maintain that. But we see that stocks globally are going to draw come Q4. We could end up at like 85 by the end of the year. We'll see what Santa brings.
1: Matt Stanley, Regional Head of Market Engagement for Kepler. Wildly impressed that a man who got off a plane at 3 o'clock from IE week this morning was awake to hear our 650 uh, American Economist inflation interview. Thank you very
3: much for joining us this morning.
0: Catch up on the business headlines with the bite-sized business breakfast.
3: Let's get some more detail on one of our top stories. Overnight, the Fed's favorite inflation measure came in at 2.4% for January. That was in line with expectations. Going to get some reaction now crossing live to the United States, where I'm delighted to say we're joined by Professor Stephen Miller. He's Professor of Economics and the Director of Research at the Center for Business and Economic Research at the Lee Business School within the University of Nevada. Professor Miller, good morning. Thanks for joining us.
4: Uh, good morning nice to be here thanks
3: so inflation in line with expectations what was your first reaction
4: well not to worry inflation is coming down but it's probably going to come down slower than people want and that means the fed probably will be lowering rates but maybe not in the same speed that people want
3: Well, let's hear from one Fed policymaker now. He is Raphael Bostock. He heads up the Federal Reserve in Atlanta. He was speaking yesterday. He gave a short speech and remarks in an interview on stage. This is what he had to say. Let's hear now from Raphael Bostock.
0: A year ago, I had expected that the first cut in rates would be appropriate probably the end of this year at the earliest. Uh, The acceleration of inflation's decline has caused me to pull that forward. Uh, and so for me, I, I'm of a view that it'll probably be appropriate if things go the way I expect uh, to see uh, us to start to re- reduce rates in the summertime.
3: In the summertime is when Mr. Bostic thinks rates should start coming down. Do you agree with him?
4: Well, I'm I'm not on the board, so uh, I, I'm not in charge of this. Uh, he He may be correct, but data could change in such a way that might delay it. What, what I, I can't see for happening is that it would be sped up any. Imagine that you have a towel and you dropped it into the swimming pool and you pulled it out. It's soaking wet and you start squeezing the towel to get the, the water out. Think of inflation. So I'm getting the inflation out. The more of the water I get out, the harder it gets to get the last part out. So the last mile is the, is the most difficult part of the uh, job.
3: I love the metaphor. The critics of, of the Fed being... So reticent to cut interest rates. Say, look, um, monetary policy acts with a lag of about 18 months. And so, yes, inflation isn't quite done yet, the towel's not quite bone dry yet, but the point of monetary policy is you have to act uh, 18 months ahead of of when you want those actions to have an effect. What do you make of that argument?
4: Oh, that's Milton Friedman's argument about lags being long and variable. So what he actually said was between nine and 18 months And therefore, the Fed is sort of in a pickle. I think that they put in a lot of uh, restraint into the system, and not all of that restraint has had a chance to have its effect. So it's going to be forthcoming this year, and that's going to affect if and when interest rates start coming down.
3: What kind of health is the United States economy in at the moment in an election year? We had, of course, the primaries over the weekend. It does look like uh, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican candidate and Joe Biden the Democratic candidate. On the surface, uh, American growth was strong in the most recent quarter. It looks like a reasonably healthy economy for an incumbent president to be going into an election with. How are you reading it?
4: Exactly. You, you would say, based on the evidence you see, that that he should be odds-on to win, win the election because of a good economy. However, when you look at the polls, you see that the, the people in the in the polls are saying that they don't think the economy is so, so good. And I've laid it off entirely to the fact that prices have risen. The inflation rate is coming down, but when the inflation rate comes down, that doesn't mean prices come down. They're still going up. There's not going up as much. And people are focused in on the high price of food and energy.
3: In terms of the, the technology sector and what's that, what that is doing to drive the economy, on the one hand, we've got all the hype about AR. And it's not just hype, there's money as well. NVIDIA's results were very, very strong. And yet we see more and more layoffs in the tech sector overnight. We and other media reporting that EA, the video game company, the latest to be laying off 500 workers or so on. Is tech a driver of the macro economy at the moment or is it a laggard?
4: Well, I had two things to say about that. When when an industry expands so rapidly, they have to hire lots of people and they end up hiring more people than they actually need in the final analysis. So that at the at the other end of the the, the story, they start laying people off. Now, maybe maybe the layoffs are more than one be expected, given my my story. But I think in the United States, we're going through a structural change here in Las Vegas. Our unemployment rate is about 2 percent above the national unemployment rate, which which is at a 50 year low for about a year and a half now. Uh, and that structural change has, has caused people to leave the leisure and hospitality sector, look for other jobs, other career paths, maybe in in uh, warehousing. And that's that's helping to keep our unemployment rate up. And I think that structural change is, is taking place across the economy. That's a microeconomic problem, not a macro problem.
3: Uh, and in terms of the underlying performance of American companies, I'm sure you and your colleagues at the at the Lee Business School look at this one closely. We hear so much about the Magnificent Seven at the moment, but of course, uh, 493 other companies in the S&P 500. What are you seeing there in, in corporate America in terms of the strengths and weaknesses?
4: Well, as long as the economy is good, and it looks pretty good going forward, uh, the forecast is for a slowdown next year, most forecasters, uh, so as long as that continues, I think, I think the, uh, the, the Fortune 500 can, can continue to do well. Of course, some people are not going to do as well as others, and, and some people are going to be disappointed. So if, you, if, you're, if you're placing your stock bets, you, you may win, you may lose. As right. my colleague used to tell me, every, every shot in golf makes somebody happy.
3: Professor Miller. Great talking to you. Appreciate your time this morning for us. It's almost 7pm in Nevada so thank you very much indeed for staying up late to speak to us. The thoughts of Professor Stephen Miller there. He's Professor of Economics at the Lee Business School, University of Nevada.
0: Just the highlights. This is the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
3: Right then let's get some insight on the economics of weddings because we've got a big one happening this weekend in India. An Ambani wedding set to set new records for a wedding at over 100 million US dollars. We've been getting some insights from Aaron Bablani, based here in Dubai. He's the owner of Viva Weddings and founder
6: of the Middle East
3: Wedding Alliance. This is what he had to say.
6: I mean, there are, there are certain weddings that are um, not announced in terms of the kind of spend, but official published numbers of this wedding are in excess of $120 million. Uh, could be one of the biggest weddings in the world. So how do we break down that kind of expense?
3: So just to clarify, this weekend we've got the pre-wedding party, which is happening in Gujarat. The main wedding is happening in in the summertime. We don't know exactly the, the details of that yet. So the price tag covers all of this. Rihanna doesn't come cheap. Let's start with her. The Economic Times in India estimates her performance fee at between 1.5 and 8 million US dollars. So the entertainment's expensive, yeah?
6: Oh, absolutely. Um, anything when it comes to Indian weddings uh, you want to give them the top-notch whether it's the food side of things whether it's entertainment side of things whether it's the hospitality in terms of the stay providing butlers going all out with technology uh, involving virtual reality or augmented reality Um, certain families want the want the best for everything Okay, so this is going to be happening, at
3: the, they're not r- renting a hotel because it's not big enough, so they're using their own private estate, which I believe is built on an old oil refinery in Gujarat, is that, that is, right?
6: That is correct. That is the biggest oil refinery in the world.
3: Uh, but it's it's posh
6: now oh yeah it is i mean if you want to if you want something to get posh get them bodies to work on it and it'll be the coolest thing you'll ever see what did we learn from the previous Ambani wedding which is i think five six years ago now pre-pandemic
3: that one was put at about 80 to 90 million us dollars when mukesh ambani's daughter got married what do we know about that
6: that is uh that's correct uh isha Ambani got married pre-pandemic and uh they had spent uh, an approximate hundred million dollars on that one and there's, there's, there's a bit of increase in this one. They're looking at between 120 plus million dollars to be spent. Even in that one, uh, the focus was food, uh, entertainment, technology at the time, hospitality. Even though the family is very humble and uh, uh, down to earth, uh, their main focus was to ensure that all the guests are comfortable. I'm sure you know about the guest list. If they have Rihanna, they have Bob Iger, they have uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they have... Uh, um, uh, Bill Gates coming to the event. Well, let's hear from him now. This is Bill Gates. He's in India at the moment.
3: He's got some videos on his social media channels. One of him was uh, at a stand having a cup of carrot Chai made, which is particularly nice. But this is him talking about the fact that he's in India, not just for a wedding, but more broadly. Let's hear from Bill Gates now. I'm thrilled to be going
7: back to India this week. I'll be learning about amazing innovations which will improve health and economic opportunity, not only in India, but across the entire globe. India offers a glimpse of a future
0: with incredible possibilities for a healthier, more prosperous world.
3: So the fact that so many business people are there, obviously Mukesh Ambani is a business person and and Anand, his son, is involved in the businesses now. To what extent are these corporate networking events?
6: I mean, you know, they always say that business is done with people. If if this provides a platform for them to look into the possibility of doing something, why not? Uh, But when you're there for a wedding, the focus is the couple uh, trying to bring their vision to life to ensure that whatever they've planned out for the guests is what is being delivered and uh, ensuring the guests are having a comfortable time. So during the time, whilst they're having fun, over a drink, over a chat, over a cup of chai, uh, if they want to do some business, why not? Well, it is big business, isn't it? You've got some stats on the size of the, the wedding
3: industry globally, particularly the destination wedding globally. What's it
6: worth? I mean, the last numbers that we've seen were uh, a little under $30 billion in 2023, and it's a staggering growth. Uh, I, would, I would assume anywhere between 40 to 50% in the next four years, touching Uh, touching almost a little under $80 billion just for the destination wedding market. And Dubai is one of those
3: destinations, isn't it, now? It's on, on the global circuit, isn't it? Where do we rank? If there's a ranking of destination wedding locations, is Dubai in the Premier League? Is it knocking on the door of the Premier
6: League? Oh, no. Dubai has always been on the Premier League over the years. But since the pandemic, we've seen a sharp rise in destination weddings coming into Dubai. Because the way the leadership handled the pandemic, we were one of the first countries to open up, Dubai being one of the first cities to open up, flights into Dubai were very easily accessible so whilst there was a pent-up demand globally, a lot of people came to Dubai and they realized that Dubai is the destination it provides the right kind of uh, pocket size of what kind of money you're looking to spend. It has the right kind of food and beverage offerings, has the right connectivity, and it put Dubai on the map. It was always on the map, but I think we've seen a sharp rise in weddings into Dubai as well. So for your business, Viva, you, you were born and raised in
3: Dubai, you've been here a long time, this is your company. Your weddings start at about a million dollars plus. That's that's where you kick in. What, kind of, what are you seeing at the moment? What's the sweet spot for a destination wedding in Dubai in terms of how much people are spending at the moment?
6: Hi, it's difficult to pinpoint a, a number, uh, Richard, because uh, different people have different uh, spend sizes. Um, in certain cases, they're looking for uh, the guests they're hosting to sort of pay for the rooms uh, and their own flights. But then there are certain families that are paying for flights, that are paying for rooms. In fact, the last wedding we did, we had uh, over 600 people in Dubai. and. Uh, All of the expenses were paid by the family, including flights and stays. We had over a thousand room nights, over four days, nine events. So what would be the price? And I know you've got client confidentiality, so you can't give us details of of that event.
3: But what would be the price tag for that kind of wedding? thousand room nights, paying for flights as
6: well? I mean, those sort of weddings would range anywhere from maybe two to four million dollars. Two to four million US dollars. And if we break down the pie
3: of spending, and I'm sure you you have those charts at your business, how much of the pie is entertainment? How much of the pie is, is lodging, if you like, and transportation? How much of the pie is what we might call food and beverage? How does it break down?
6: I mean, there's four or five major elements, right, when it comes to destination wedding. Uh, The first is the stay, so depending on where we're hosting people, Room nights can range anywhere from $400 all the way to $2,000 a room night. Uh, the second would be the f which is a key focus of destination weddings uh, to ensure that the best is offered in terms of F&B. It can be and small, It can be as small as getting the hotel just to cater or have caterers all over the world coming down to Dubai to sort of cater for the wedding, just like the Ambani's are. I think they have over 2,500 dishes a day for the events that they're offering. Third would be the decor element, so the aesthetics of it. Uh, having different themes and styles. And fourth would be maybe the logistics, either the logistics in terms of the flights or in terms of transportation of getting people to the hotel or from the airport to the hotel and back to the airport. The thoughts of Arun Bablani, there, owner of Viva Weddings, on the Ambani
3: wedding, the prenuptials happening this weekend. This is the bite-sized business
0: breakfast, exclusively on Dubai 1038com
1: I am speaking to a man about a commodity that we are particularly fond of here on the business breakfast, and that is. Chocolate Ferrero, the people behind Ferrero Rocher, Nutella uh, and Kinder have just opened a regional headquarters here in Dubai. We are joined by the new Gulf Managing Director, Mauro Di Philippe. Mario, it's lovely to meet you, good morning.
7: Very nice to meet you, thanks uh, for having me here.
1: And welcome to the UAE from China.
7: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, so far a very exciting uh, journey.
1: (laughs) So you've opened a regional HQ in downtown Dubai. What makes an office a, a regional headquarters? What kind of headcount are we talking?
7: So, yes, um, the opening of our new headquarters in uh, Dubai downtown really uh, marks, um, I would say, a milestone for uh, Federal Golf. Um, uh, we've been here for many, many, many years, uh, but we physically we have started our journey uh, around 10 years ago with uh, 12 people, imagine. And then we uh, ramp up uh, to a talented team of uh, more than 400 uh, people. Uh, Not only in the UAE, by the way, but across the whole uh, Gulf. So the headquarters are here in Dubai, but we have also offices in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia and uh, in Kuwait. Um.
1: You've opened in downtown. We've been speaking to a lot of commercial real estate people recently about the difficulty in finding office space at the moment. How easy was it to find the space that you needed?
7: We've been quite, uh, honestly speaking, uh, not too difficult for, for us. We've been uh, quite uh, rapid and quick. Uh, I have to say, and, and probably this gives me also the opportunity to once again express our, uh, uh, our gratitude for the, for the local government because for providing a, you know, such a top class environment for businesses to grow, to develop, uh, to thrive. So uh, it was, uh, I would say, an uh, easy choice to uh, move uh, to our new offices. Um, and new headquarters. I would. I'd like to say that uh, they represent more than a simple physical space for us. It's really the generation of a, uh, a new hub where uh, our people can, you know, uh, create, uh, innovate, uh, and be inspired uh, every day.
1: That decision, though, to set up your regional HQ here is is interesting because we have seen an awful lot of competition from Saudi Arabia um, and a, an awful lot of impetuous from, from the government there to set up headquarters in the kingdom. Tell me about how you made that choice.
7: Oh, that choice has been made uh, already many different years ago, and, uh, but and this is an, uh, represent an important investment for, uh, for the group but I have to say that we have been also investing uh, very, very significantly across all the region of the Gulf, uh, including uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. Just to give you some, uh, some, an idea, we've been uh, doubling the size of our turnover in the last four years, since 2020. Uh, 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 the ambition, the aspiration is to, of course, uh, uh, double, keep doubling the size of the business within the s- next five years. And for this, we have made investments, important investments, not only in UAE, but also uh, across the region, particularly in, in Saudi, you were mentioning. So, uh, for example, uh, we have established a joint venture uh, by, um, in, uh, in uh, three of the major markets that we have. UAE, uh, Saudi, and also uh, Kuwait. Th-
1: the products that you sell here, the, the chocolates and the, the chocolate hazelnut spread, where are the Gulf products manufactured?
7: They are manufactured, they are coming from, uh, from outside the uh, UAE, from outside the Gulf for, uh, for the time being. We are uh, importing uh, products from uh, uh, 10 different uh, production sites, uh, mainly, uh, I would say, uh, Europe, but also we are importing from Turkey, we are importing also from, uh, from China, uh, for example.
1: You say for the time being, is there any talk about manufacturing in the Gulf?
7: Not, not yet, no, it's not in our plans for the time being. Manufacturing mm-hmm. in, uh, locally, no. We, are, uh, uh, we have uh, co-packing uh, facilities here, uh, we work with uh, co-packers, uh, particularly when it comes to adapting our offer to uh, a seasonal range. So for this one, yes, but at the time, at the time, for the time being, we don't have any plans to invest uh, in, a, in a local uh, plant.
1: Why not? What would make or not make that decision?
7: It's a decision that uh, depends from, uh, from the group. Uh, at the moment, we are still uh, leveraging uh, on the efficiencies coming from uh, our uh, 37 plants across uh, the world in five different continents. So we still have a headroom to go.
1: Oh, well, we've been talking recently about rising cocoa prices now at an all time high. How are those futures prices affecting you?
7: But for the time being, uh, we'll see, we'll see. We have been uh, coping uh, with the, all the rest of the players uh, in, other, uh, in, in the chocolate confectionery market uh, with uh, an important, uh, significant inflationary uh, moment. Uh, the last couple of years has been quite uh, uh, challenging from that perspective. Uh, despite this, we, are, uh, we have been uh, going uh, through this. Um, of course, we had uh, uh, to pass uh, some price increases uh, um, uh, in order to cope with that. Uh, across uh, a little bit the markets, uh, but still uh, um, deco- the consumers are recognizing the, the, the superiority of the brands. We keep uh, growing um, uh, across the region. Uh, we keep, uh, uh, more importantly, uh, increasing our value market share um, across uh, all the categories where we are uh, operating. This is a clear uh, you know, sign of the uh, recognition from the consumer uh, that they keep loving the brands, <laughs> of course.
1: Oh, what level of price increases have you had to pass on?
7: Um, I cannot give you this uh, number precisely uh, right now, uh, it's been mild in a low-digit. Uh, uh, Is
1: that the end of, of price increases, or with rising sugar prices do you expect to see more to come?
7: For the time being, uh, we, we are uh, uh, probably expecting uh, increases uh, on uh, raw material, in particular the cocoa you were mentioning uh, before in the, in, in the future, but then uh, we haven't made any call yet on, uh, on our prices.
1: Uh, The last thing I want to talk to you about is hazelnut supply. Um, Richard pointing out this morning that Ferrero uses around a quarter of the world's hazelnuts, which is astounding. Big concerns about the supply of hazelnuts towards the end of last year, particularly coming out of Turkey. What do you do to secure your, your supply chain?
7: But well, we have uh, many and different uh, ways to secure the chain. Uh, first of all, we have uh, seven different uh, pharma um, uh, plants in uh, in, uh, in the country in uh, in Turkey. We have a set we have uh, set up a, a special company within the group, which is called the Hazelnut uh, Company. Uh, so, which is li- really looking after the uh, the sourcing of hazelnut from a pharma to to factory, and uh, guaranteeing uh, the right supply for the production. Of course, uh, the right quality the products this is something that we absolutely uh, absolutely need uh, uh, as well
1: well thank you so much for joining us this morning uh the ish golf managing director for ferrero which has just opened its regional hq in downtown dubai more di philippe it's lovely to meet you thank
7: you lovely to meet you too